One of the things, uh, side note, one of the things when I was on vacation, I just started realizing that I think church gets too focused on, on being like business-like. It's one of the reasons I like that we don't have our own building. We're kind of a, what we call a tabernacle church. We just set up a tent. If you ever thought about it, to build facilities like this would cost like $30 million. And then we'd have to hire high schoolers to decorate it, graffiti it. Um, it'd be another 100000 But we, we get to, to rent this at just a fraction of that. And so instead of spending our money, we get to invest our money. We don't have to come up with $30 million. And if we ever do get a building, I'm beginning to realize we need to make it an investment. We don't just spend money. It's the parable of the talents kind of a thing. We need to invest money. But it's, it's cool we've got this facility. It's cool that we have buildings. But what, what really is going to make this church something uh, is the relationships. I think we can just get so driven on, on building and doing and accomplishing and meetings and services that we never really get to know each other to the degree that we're living life authentically enough that when people go, man, I'm, I see your life and I see your friendships and I see how they take care of you. And man, I'm jealous. How do I, how do I get to be a part of that family? How do I get to be a part of a church? I mean, I want that. And after 20 years, if all we've done is stuff, I mean, no one's going to care. I mean, it's just going to all fade away. If we really build authentic relationships and create something dynamic here, a community, like what Jesus kind of was praying about, like, God, let your people be one. Then 20 years from now, all of us, we're going to be filled with so many memories. You know, it's like vacation. You know, we can just do, do, do. But if we make memories, that's the stuff that lasts. And so... Just a real focus on me coming back to just we need to be a church that's relational. It takes time. you got to choose to do it. we got to build it into our schedule, but that's the only thing that's really going to matter. And I think that's the thing that's going to make God our father. He's a dad. He's a papa. Um, that's going to make him smile when he sees us just living life together and loving on each other. So uh, we're in First Peter. If you'd like to turn there, I'd love for you to read along, especially this week. We got, we're going to take a little chunk here, a little paragraph, and try and unpack it. And we've got it on the board for you. I'm going to just read it through one time first, and then we're going to try and break it up and dissect it a little bit. But we've, read it, we've been reading in First Peter, and we kind of get to this summary statement. Peter's saying, hey, if you suffer for doing good, like it's unjust, like you shouldn't be suffering. You're not doing anything wrong, but it's okay. Christ suffered too. You're following in His steps. And he's kind of been giving us this whole line of reasoning. And then he says in verse 17 of, of chapter 3, he says this, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's a summary statement. And then he goes on into verse 18. He says this, For Christ died for sins once for all. He died for sins once for all. And, and Peter used this as an Old Testament kind of phrase here when they were giving sacrifices for sins in the Old Testament to atone, to, to make themselves pure or clean. And he invokes that. And he says, Jesus died for sins, to, to make us pure, to make us clean once for all. And it is the righteous for the unrighteous. And the goal of this, the reason he did this, the end that he had in mind was to bring you to God. He wants to reconcile you to God. Now it goes on, it says, He was put to death in the body and made alive by the Spirit, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison. 
who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And in it, in the ark, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water now symbolizes baptism that saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus died so that he could bring us to God. It saves us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, I just read that, and 90% of you only heard one little verse. Now, I'll show you why that is. Let's just break it up into sentences. Um, So here's what it looks like if you just break it into three sentences. Now, the verse I was talking about that 90% of you, that's all you heard, is that middle one. Okay, let's read it again. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached, that's Jesus, to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Just read that last week, didn't you? Right? (laughs) What in the heck does that mean? And so we read that and we immediately go, we we miss all the other stuff. And so visually, let's just show what that looks like, is we take this whole line of reasoning and in our minds we kind of bold out that middle. Um, It... I'm going out of order, so I'm messing her up. But we kind of bold out that middle, and we say, whoa, what what does this mean? I've never heard this before. What's going on here? And most scholars would say that this verse right here, this sentence, is the hardest in the whole New Testament to interpret. It's kind of widely recognized as the hardest sentence to interpret in the whole New Testament. Because it's kind of borrowed from a couple places, and there's nowhere else that kind of shades it in, and so it just leaves all these questions. When did Jesus go? Was it like in between when he died and when he rose from the dead, or after this? Where did he go? Where's this prison? And he was preaching, like, what was he preaching, and why was he preaching, and who was he preaching to? And it asks all these questions that are kind of hard to resolve. And so Martin Luther says of this passage, Martin Luther, who started the Reformation back in the 1500s, says... Oh, I went way out of order, didn't I? Sorry about that. We've got a Martin Luther quote, and Martin Luther says this, This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. I mean, so Luther's just kind of throwing up his hands and saying, Wow, that's, that's like a head-scratcher. And Millard Erickson, who kind of wrote a whole systematic theology that's used in a lot of seminaries these days, Um, walking through what are the doctrines of the Christian faith, and he's kind of a church historian that way. He counted up 180 potentially different ways of piecing this puzzle together. 180 different ways that you could kind of spell out an interpretation of this passage. So So our mind kind of goes, what in the world does that mean? And we slow down. We slow down. So let me give you an illustration of what that would look like. So if I'm talking to you in a sentence... And I said, um, we're going we're gonna to drive from here to there and we're going to do it slowly because we have precious cargo on board. And he said, well, what was that word? Slow what? Slowly. What was that word again? Slowly. What, what was that word again? 
slowly. Okay, I got it. Slowly, but what were we talking about? Uh, you see what I'm saying? Like if you if you take one little piece out and slow it down so much that you understand it, pretty soon you, you might get that one little piece, but you lose track of what the sentence was about. And what the sentence was about was getting a precious cargo from here to there. Does that make sense? And so when we fixate on that one little red verse there, because it's trivia. And man, have you, ever, have you met those Christians that just love like Bible trivia? I mean, they, they wake up in the first two hours of every day, they, they read the book of Revelation, you know, and they've got like charts and, you know, um, Kip's like that, you know. <laughs> Kip, our youth pastor, loves trivia. He heard I was talking about this passage and his eyes just lit up and he started talking about the Nephilim and the Jenna, and I was just like, whoa. <laughs> um, but so it's trivia. And so we slow down. And then we slow down even more. And then we slow down even more. And we're trying to figure out that one little piece. And guess what happens? We lose sight of what Peter was talking about. And so I think we need to understand that there's a principle of Bible interpretation. And, and the, the word, the fancy word for that is hermeneutics. And, and hermeneutics comes from the Greek messenger god was named Hermes. And so he'd bring messages you had to interpret. So the fancy word is hermeneutics. And it means just like theory of interpretation. How do you interpret something? And when we read the Bible, we we sometimes do it in a lot of funky ways and it's not always right. And the, the number one rule of hermeneutics is what was the author's intent? What did the author mean when he was saying what he was saying? Because that's where the real meaning is going to be. Because we can read into a lot of stuff, can't we? Like, we just read it, and we're like, oh, that has to do with, like, this and that. And, and then you come back later, and you read the context or the flow of what the author's saying. You're like, yeah, it has nothing to do with what that guy was just saying. Like, he's out to lunch. And one of the things that Bible studies, when you get together with a group of 12 people and you're doing a Bible study, one of the, one of the worst questions to always ask is, um, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? Oh, well, it means this to me. And here's the thing, it only has one meaning. It has the meaning that the author intended for it to have. So the question you should ask is, how does that apply to you? Or how does that apply to me? But don't say, what does it mean? It has one meaning, what the author intended for it to mean. And so hermeneutics, as we're trying to interpret a passage like this, we have to say, what does the author mean by this? And Peter doesn't mean to, to talk about trivia. That's, his, that's not his main point. He's coming into this thing and, he, and he's not saying get fixated on this idea of Jesus and going and preaching to the, the people in prison. I'm using that as an analogy. I have a greater purpose in mind that has to do with this whole suffering for doing good and what's happening with you being saved out of this judgment that's happening. Does that make sense? Okay, let's talk a little bit about that red section though just by way of explanation. Um, what... What Peter's talking about here is he references a book that was familiar to his audience. It's not that familiar to us, but the book of Enoch. And he makes reference to that, which basically in the book of Enoch, I'll read you a segment of it. You you get the whole story retold of Noah. And before the the story of Noah, there's these these angels that come down and start um, uh, having children with human women. And they give birth to kind of these giants and they're half human, half not. And, and basically in this book of Enoch, 
it says, the Lord says to Michael, Go and bind Semjaza and his associates who have united themselves with women so as to have defiled themselves with them in all their uncleanness. And when their sons have slain one another and they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them fast for 70 generations in the valleys of the earth till the day of their judgment and of their consummation, till the judgment that is forever and ever is consummated. And in those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire and to the torment and the prison in which they shall be confined forever. And whosoever shall be condemned and destroyed will from thenceforth be bound together with them to the end of all generations. So Enoch is also quoted in the book of Jude. Um, it's, it's something that would have been familiar to Peter's audience. They might not have had extensive knowledge of it. If I say, I used to say this all the time when I was down in L.A. and my wife hated it, but I used to just be like, um, this place is hell. I meant that because I hate heat, you know, and I hate bright sun. It hurts my eyes. And so we'd go around, and I have a tendency to overstate things. And so we got married, and, and, you know, we'd be talking about Los Angeles and be like, yeah, this place is hell. And Tamara would look at me and just be like, you know, don't say that. You know, people like L.A. And then I'd kind of come back and say, well, then, you know, if it's not hell, then it's purgatory. (laughs) Okay. Um, Now, you guys all know what I mean, right? Where does the doctrine of purgatory come from? Where is it quoted? What books does it derive from? Um, what, what are the official stances about purgatory? I mean, we, well, some of us might have grown up Catholic. Some of us might be scholars or theologians and have a little bit more knowledge on purgatory and where that comes from. But it's a part of our culture. And when I say purgatory, you don't have to have extensive knowledge of it to know what the heck I'm talking about. Does that make sense? Now, Peter's taken for granted that his readers kind of have a, a loose understanding of what he's talking about. And, and in the book of Enoch, you see this thing come up with the abyss, and then it goes right into Noah. And Peter wants to draw an analogy between Noah and the flood and baptism. And so Peter's talking to an, to, to an audience, and he's going to use this analogy just like I used purgatory, and he's going to appeal to their background knowledge. He's going to say, hey, just like um, Jesus... When he, when he died, he was made alive. And in that realm, he went to the prison and preached to those people that have been bound up since the days of Noah. And his audience is going, yeah, yeah, that's right. They've been bound up since the days of Noah. The archangel took and bound them up. And that's the background understanding. Now, it's interesting. Christians took this verse, and we've, we've morphed it over the years. In, the, in about the 400s, the Apostles' Creed was kind of edited uh, a lot of scholars believe, to say he went down and was buried to he descended. And they say t- it's the dissension view. And it's basically this idea that Christ, in between dying and raising from the dead, descended into the abyss. And there's this idea of lower. And so it actually gets changed and kind of built into the Apostles' Creed. And in kind of Christian language over the years, we get this I- idea of the dissension that Christ, and what did he do for three days? Well, he... he descended. Um, And in this verse, you don't quite see that. He went. He went to wherever this prison was Peter's talking about and preached to these people. And so Peter is just borrowing background knowledge. And if we slow down too much, we miss what Peter is really saying because what he's trying to get to is something different. Because what Peter's setting up is uh, a literary device called a type antitype. A type antitype. So Paul does the same thing. Paul takes baptism 
And he says, just like you've got baptism now, when you get saved and there's water in it, and it's a metaphor for cleansing, and then you're over on this side. You once were there, and now you're here, and this water's in the middle. Paul says, hey, it was like the Red Sea. When, when God led people out, and Moses was kind of at the front, and they came to the Red Sea, and the waters parted, and they went through and were delivered, okay? Just like that was this way, so now baptism, same thing, okay? Type, anti-type. Paul does it again in... In 1 Corinthians 10, when he says, in the desert, when the Israelites were wandering around, they had water, and and God provided the water, and they had manna, and God provided the manna. And that's just now like communion. It's the blood and the the body of Christ that God has provided for you, that your spiritual food, your sustenance, it's it's a means of grace for you. And he uses this kind of device, and it's it's a type, anti-type. It prefigures in the Old Testament what's going to come in the New Testament. So let's read how this passage would look if we're really trying to pick on what Peter's saying. We highlight some different things and take the confusing parts and just gray those out. But this is kind of how it would read. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom we also went and preached the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And in it, that ark, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Okay? So if we're going to try and pick up on Peter's meaning, we can... Get that off the screen, but I'm going to just try and, in my words, try and give you the flow of the argument here. Peter's saying, it's okay if you're suffering for doing good because of Christ. So, what does that look like for you? In your industry, you're the only person that follows the rules or is ethical, and everybody else is cutting corners or cheating, and it's hard for you to get ahead and they single you out and you're kind of persecuted or you suffer. It's harder for you because you're doing good. Or maybe you're in a marriage and the only reason you're still in that marriage is just because you're trying to glorify God, but you're suffering and yet you're staying there and you're trying to do good. Or maybe with how you spend your money, you're you're making it to give it away. It just doesn't make any sense. You're not trying to hoard it. You're not trying to collect it. You're trying to make money because you're just generous and you just want to give. And yet that puts you in financial hardship and you suffer because of it. But you're suffering for doing good. Maybe you've got a group of friends. Or maybe you're making moral decisions that other people you know aren't making. Or maybe you're resisting the 15 different kinds of addiction that are surrounding every one of us right now. It's crazy. Um... I got addicted to TV on vacation. It was kind of fun. I was just like, I couldn't get... I, um, I learned a lot about myself. But maybe you're suffering for doing good. Maybe because of Jesus and choosing Him rather than the ways of this world, you're suffering for doing good. And Peter's saying, you know, there's another time like that. Okay, In the day of Noah, everything was bad. Everything was bad. Everyone was unrighteous. And God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge it. And I'm going to kill everyone. 
I'm going to bring a flood. I'm going to judge everyone for being unrighteous. I'm going to kill them all. And to preserve kind of what's going on, I'm going to take this group, eight and all, and I'm going to pull them through the water and set their feet on, on solid ground over here. And I'm going to start anew with Noah and, and what's going on here. So I'm going to ask him on faith to build this ark. And so for years, for years, we trivialize history. You know, like when we look back, we're like, oh, that wouldn't have been hard, that battle in the Civil War. You know, like we, we analyze it, theorize it. You know, it's all objective in our minds. And, and we don't understand what it would have felt like real time. You know what I mean by that? Like we trivialize things when we look at it through like historical lenses. But so God asks Noah to build this ark and he suffers for doing good. And he suffers and he suffers and he's got these unrighteous people and it's like, it's okay, Noah. You're suffering, but you're doing right. You're doing good. And I'm bringing you... I've, I've, I've cordoned you off. I've chosen you, and I'm going to save you. Okay, that's what's going on. So now Peter's saying, likewise, you're over here, and it's unrighteous, and there's bad people all around, and people that like to pick on you, and people that cheat, and people that cut corners, and, and people that are unethical, and people that don't do always what they ought to do towards you, and you're suffering for doing good. And this time, I'm going to judge the world. But I made a promise last time with a, a rainbow that I was never going to just kill all the unrighteous again. So I'm going to judge everyone, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the righteous person that has no sin, and I'm going to have him die in the place of all these unrighteous. Instead of killing everybody, I'm going to let my one and only son die for everybody, these sins. And so now they can choose through faith to, to link up with Jesus Christ so that he can bring you and bring them to me. Bring, bring people to God. That's what Peter was talking about, right? And so, it's okay if you're suffering for, for doing good. Jesus suffered too. And not only that, he's victorious. And you can bank on that and you can trust him. And so you need to make a decision to reject this and to accept Christ. You need, you need to make a decision. And Peter's driving you towards this. And and you need to make a pledge and you need to say, you know what? I am done with this old self. And I'm going to start over and, and be planted, feet on firm ground and live for God. And, and it says, Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Paul uses a metaphor for baptism that says, when you go down, and the word baptizo in Greek means to dip or to dunk, but it also means to wash and so if you, if you picture it, it'd be like a washboard. You know what I mean? Like taking clothes and with a washboard or rocks and, and beating them and dipping and dunking. I remember beat people during baptism. It's kind of fun. Um, extreme baptism. Um, the, uh, so this is what's going on. And, and, and Paul says, when you go down into that water, you die to self. And then and when you come out, it's as if you're being resurrected over here with Christ into this newness of life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, uh, 2 Corinthians actually, 5, 16, 17, 18, it's this cool little passage, and I don't know if I marked it. I did, okay. Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And all of this is from God because, remember, if you were here at the beginning of the First Peter series, it's God who saves. 
It's God who saves and it's we who are being saved through Christ. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So God grabbing us out of this unrighteous world and and the judgment that's happening on the people that are not willing to turn and trust God. And he's bringing us through Christ over to himself. He's reconciling us. And Peter's setting up this metaphor and he's, I mean, he's pleading with you you got to get this whole suffering for doing good thing. Where you want to be is not on this side of the water. I mean, the Continental Divide, you know, like the Continental Divide is kind of where, like, all, I, th- I think, I'm not a geologist, but I think all the water on this side goes to, like, one ocean, and, you know, all the water on this side goes to another ocean, and it's like, it's really the, the tipping point in some sense. And, and you don't want to be on this side of the water where you're going to be judged. You, you want to be on this side of the water where you've been brought over to God and everything has been made new. And so Peter takes us home in this regard with this analogy of baptism. He says, just like Noah and his family had to throw themselves onto those waters and on the back side of that water they were safe and they were, they were put on firm ground. You too, when you choose God, when you choose Christ, are going to be baptized. It's going to be symbolic and it's, it's one of the, the biggest symbols in all of the faith. And, and it's important because it gives you that moment that says, I'm on this side of the water. I'm no longer committed to the things of this world. I have taken my life and pledged it to God. I'm going to live differently. I'm going to let my light shine. I'm going to live in such a way that when people see me, it brings praise to the Father. I'm going to suffer for doing good, and it's okay because I'm trusting Christ. And so we're going to be on this side of the water. And so I'm going to pick up something that I was going to share at the beginning, but we'll just insert it now. Um, One of the things we have to guard ourselves against, even at Antioch here, we don't do it a lot, but I think every church can do it, is it's just easier to talk about things that are practical, that have to do with your everyday life. How to have a better marriage, three steps to finding joy, you know, Ten steps to forgiving whatever. I don't, you know what I mean? Like kind of how to, and it, it, to make you a better person. And I think sometimes we can get caught up in this how-to syndrome of making life better. But there's no, there's no avoiding it. Scripture talks first and foremost about the eternal stuff. It talks about salvation. It talks about demons. It talks about angels. It talks about what's going to happen after this life and my body is gone. And that's what I love about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writes screw tape letters, and he's like, it's like from a demon's perspective of tempting people, and people thought it was ridiculous. So here's a Time magazine from 1947, and it's got Lewis on it with a little demon on his shoulder, and you can't really read it, but the subtitle underneath there says, Oxford's C.S. Lewis, His Heresy, Christianity. I mean, he was talking about spiritual things in such a way that people were like, you're crazy, talking about demons and the you know eternal and that realm, and you're supposed to be an Oxford intellectual. <laughs> what are you doing? And so times like, you know, here's you know, Oxford C.S. Lewis, his heresy is Christianity. I, I've got a copy of that magazine at home, which is pretty cool. Long live eBay. Um, <laughs> but I love how Lewis did that. And, and Paul, I think we showed it briefly earlier, but Paul in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians he talks about 
This is what I passed on to you. Jesus came, he died, he rose again. He gives the kind of the whole formula, and most scholars believe that's the oldest text of the New Testament. Most scholars believe that what, what, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is in this whole section is he plugs in oral tradition that goes all the way back to the time of Christ. That This is kind of the mantra that all Christians say. It's their creed, and it's the, kind of the oldest witness we have is this chapter because of the sentence structure, the language, and everything else that Paul plugs in the creed. He says, this is what it is. Jesus died, Jesus raised, da-da-da-da-da. And then he goes on and he concludes with this. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ, the people that have died believing, they're lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What Paul's saying is, it doesn't matter how good your marriage is, it doesn't matter if you've got the five steps to smiling as a Christian, or whether you have the ten steps to forget, it doesn't matter. All of that stuff is worthless. It's absolutely worthless if Christ didn't rise from the dead. All that we're doing here is absolutely futile if we don't have a hope beyond the grave. And so I think one of the things we've got to realize is the Scripture it forces us to think about life in bigger terms. I think we come to Christ that way. Some of you might be here this morning this way, but when we first start analyzing the claims of Christianity, I think what drives us there are the bigger questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Who made me? Is there a God? Where do I go after death? Is there a heaven? And that's kind of what drives us there. And then we get bored after a while as Christians, and we start getting absorbed in the like three steps to a better marriage. But I think we start out with these eternal questions. We've got to keep coming back to it and realizing this is huge. It's the bedrock. It's the foundation. And so Peter takes us there and he says, look, there is judgment going on. And these people that are not in Christ are going to be judged and they're going to be lost. And he's saying, you need to be on this side of the water and be in Christ, trusting Him for your salvation. The righteous died for the unrighteous, for you, to make you, to, to make you clean, to make you holy, to make you pure, to make you so that you could mix with God again, to bring you to God. And so baptism is no small thing. It's this huge symbol in your life, in the life of the community, in, in your friends, and your family, the people that know you, that says, this person has demonstrated publicly that there is, there is a before and an after. There's a moment in their life where they are saying, I'm trusting Christ to bring me through the water, to make me new, to set my feet on, on solid ground. I'm a new creation. And it's okay to suffer for doing good. Baptism's huge. So we're going to end this way. Um, you've got in your bulletin, we're, we're doing another baptism in August. And if you've never been baptized, I would just encourage you, to, to be baptized. It's in the Deschutes River. I got baptized in a hot tub and it was stupid. <laughs> I mean, I, I wish like I had have thought about it a little bit longer and gone down to the lake or something, but um, the baptism at Deschutes, I think it's great imagery in the river. I, I love our baptism service. Um, if you haven't been baptized, we can talk about it some more. You can ask for more information or you can kind of sign up and we'll start sending you emails about what's going on. 
But you've got to realize this is what it's all about. Is a crux moment where you're going to be on this side of the water. So I encourage you to do that. And the way we're going to close this service is we're going to show the baptism video from last year. And when that video is done, we're going to take the offering. Um, and you can put this in the offering when it comes by. Uh, you can ask more questions or you can sign up. We'd love for you to do that. But it's no small thing. So here's the video. As I went down to the river to pray, struggling about that good old way, and who shall wear the story crown? Good Lord, show me the way. How can I repay the Lord for all of his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. As I went down to the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the story crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Two and a half years ago, uh, the Lord picked me up out of a pit of total self-destruction and addiction and things that you couldn't believe a person could be in in their hearts. And he rescued me. It's really a long journey. <laughs> but I'm just really happy to have come to Bend to find Antioch and to be here today to get baptized. It's just, it's, it's a life-changing experience for me. I never was baptized. I went to church when I was a little girl, but never, we quit going before I was old enough to um, be baptized. And just going to different churches, I never found somewhere that I felt enough of a connection to go to that point. And since finding Antioch, I really feel like I found a pastor that I feel has that ability to, to do that for me. So I'm really excited to be able to do that today. And I'm glad we get to do it outside in the river because I think that's a lot more meaningful. Ever since we came to Antioch a few months ago, um, we've been talking about being baptized. So um, we've just um, been really close with God ever since we started coming to church. And um, so uh, I feel personally that uh, it's, it's been a big, big difference in my life ever since um, I've accepted God. And uh, I'm, I'm living more for, for God instead of myself. That, that was the, the big difference. I, I knew I was ready to be baptized. I was baptized as a child. I was, it was a Catholic baptism, and I was raised that. And my heart never was really into it. I mean, I was going through the motions, and then I had various friends who were Christian, and I just listened to them and watched how they lived, and, and it just pulled me in that direction. And I thought, wow, I want to do that. So I actually started to read the Bible, and I saw that's what I need to do. And I need to submit to God and just obey Him. And it's taken me a while. I wanted to find the right church. Um, we tried different churches, and I, and I found Antioch, and I just thought, oh, this feels like home. This is where I want to do it. Um, I wanted to be baptized as like a public and also symbolic announcement that I just want to devote my life to Christ. I think that God has just worked so many miracles in our life, and He's really just led us to um, just follow Him and live a great life. And so I just want to give Him glory and just follow Him. I'm getting baptized because before I was baptized, I just would go to church and I'd think, I'd just 
say, oh, I went to church, I don't have to read the Bible or do anything, but now I know that I have, you have to just, you have to live it, not just say that you believe in God and say that you go to church. I've been a Christian my whole life, and I've never been baptized, and so I just want to follow Jesus' example. He was baptized, and so I'm just going to be obedient and do what he says. I gave my life to the Lord uh, 23 years ago, and uh, it's just something that you know thought about I needed to do, but uh, it's taken me this long to finally do it. Just kind of the final step in uh, you know fully committing myself to Christ and uh, following in the ways that He would have me have me go. I just want to start a new life and start fresh with the Lord in my life. I love the Lord, so yeah. I think I've been uh, waiting uh, for the right time for me to be committed. And uh, now I'm ready, and all chips are in. That's how I feel. I feel like I'm ready to, I got a good hand, finally. <laughs> and I'm ready to commit and uh, let Jesus lead my life and let God Almighty take over and sit in the back seat for a while. So it's, uh, I'm real excited about it. I'm excited about it, be here with friends and family, too. And then Antioch, I mean, that, uh, between Ken and Antioch, and the excitement that they've brought to me uh, about being a Christian. So, you know, I'm real excited about it. I want to devote my life to God in public and let everybody know that I'm a Christian. I just want to like devote my life to God forever and, I don't know, make it more official. <laughs> I'm definitely here to get baptized and in a church that I actually fell at home at. And um, although my family's not here, they're in California, it's, it's okay because there's a lot of people here I consider family. I'm here today to uh, basically re-proclaim that... Um, I am giving my life to Christ wholeheartedly and that um, He can have His way with me. My testimony to God is, is so big and now I can just I can go underwater and I can come up new and, and this is my way of saying I love you Jesus and I want people to see it and know it and um, be blessed in this day. Well, God has basically done a tremendous work in my life over the last few years, and um, He's taught me really what it means to be a servant to Him, and this is kind of my public display of that. You want people to know you live for Jesus' life.
God, do you love your God and are you committing to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Oh, amen. Baptizing the name of your family are you committing to follow Jesus as your leader in your life yeah. all right God bless you we, we baptize you in the name of, of the Father and of Jesus and the Holy Spirit the first time I've gotten to see it. It's beautiful to see all of that. I wanted to remind you guys once again, if you have an interest in that, if you feel God calling your heart toward that, please fill out that card that's in your, um, in your little pamphlet. We just want to sing a song to you guys while you're taking up offering. It's called Revelation 15. It's actually a song that uh, Ben wrote, so I hope you guys enjoy. Enjoy. 